some of you were here last week and that you came back this week at all is something of a small miracle. Because if you were here, I asked you to swap your wallets with other people in the row. And I thought for sure you would never come back. Uh, but let's just recap where we've been. The trajectory of this journey that we're on, the treasure principle. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to keep one thumb in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. In fact, uh, you could probably dog ear that page or mark it somehow on your phone because that is the key verse that we are going to be working with over the next three weeks, and we were in it last week. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus says, and you remember the words, don't store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Because rust will corrode it and moss will chew it up and thieves could break in and steal it. Instead, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of that could happen. And then this verse, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the treasure principle. Don't store up for yourselves, treasures where they're just going to be lost. Not because it's bad, not because treasures are bad, but because it's foolish. At a very understandable level, it's silly. Randy Alcorn, who you were working with this week, if you were doing some of the studies in the small group, says when Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not because wealth might be lost. It's because wealth will always be lost. Either it leaves us while we live, or we leave it when we die. There are, he says, no exceptions. You can't take it with you. We know that. But to that that little proverb, you can't take it with you, Jesus adds this stunning qualification. Yes, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that's the treasure principle. That anything that we try our very best to hang on to here will inevitably be lost. But those things we place in God's hands, what we invest in people and in causes that expand the kingdom, these things get to last forever. Let me tell you a story. One time Jesus is teaching, a man comes up to him and says, uh, Rabbi, my brother owes me a lot of money. What can you do to make him repay the debt? He recognizes that for this man, it's not just the collection of a debt that's at, at risk, but, but he's more concerned about money than he is about the relationship within his family. And he wants to address our tendency, I think, to worship what's inside of our wallet instead of the nexus of relationships, especially our relationship with God that are at the core of who we are. And so he tells a story. This is in Luke chapter 12. And again, I'm going to invite you to stick your thumb in there. We're not going to read it. I'm going to tell it, though. I'm going to tell the story from a 21st century perspective. But you can glance along and see how closely it tracks with Jesus' version of the story. It's a story of a man who you could say probably descriptively, among the things that he wanted would always be added the little corollary or condition that it would always take more. It just took a little bit more when it came to everything. And so he'd work Just enough, but then a little bit more. 12 to 14 hours a day. Not just five days a week, but a little bit more. Six, sometimes seven. He would join boards of directors and professional organizations and business networks. And and it wasn't just that work was his occupation. Work was his preoccupation. His wife would nag him about how the kids were growing up in front of them and he was missing it. 
And yet every day he'd still come home from, from work with his briefcase packed, filled with the work that he had to do that evening. And one day his son finally asked him, said, Dad, how come you're always bringing work home from work? And he said, well, son, it's because I can't get it all done at the office. The son said, well, Dad, maybe they can put you in a slower group or something. But this man wasn't big on the idea of slowing down. One day he's lying in bed at one o'clock in the morning, he experiences a twinge in his chest. And so the next day his wife makes a doctor's appointment. The doctors tell him he's got to take some radical steps to change his life. His habits are killing him. He's got all the classic symptoms of a type A personality at risk for heart attack, elevated cholesterol, high blood pressure, sleep insomnia. And he thinks to himself, yeah, I got to get on that. But six months from now, when things slow down at work, I'm going to take all that stuff real seriously. Their home church was nearby. They believed in God. They attended, but there wasn't a whole lot of time for much more in their lives. There'll be time for that when everything else settles down, he tells his family. Besides, he says to his wife, I can believe in God without having to show up at church quite so often. One day, the COO of his company comes and says, I think that we are on the brink of an economic explosion. And the great news is that if we manage to catch and ride this wave, we'll be set for life. But the truth is that orders are coming in so fast that we cannot keep up with the demand. Our, our, our supply our supply chain software is just vastly inadequate, and our production is not meeting the quotas that we need. We're in serious trouble. Now, from that moment on, this man, Jesus, talks about this story. He spends every day of his life waking up obsessed with the idea of maximizing that one opportunity, and it hits him. He can revolutionize his company, cutting-edge technology, strategic reorganization, the latest in supply, supply chain management. And so he says to his wife, you know what this means. By the time I'm finished with this project, we're set for life. We don't ever need to worry about anything. We'll cover every base. We'll consider every contingency. This is it. At last, we'll have arrived at the top of the ladder. Everything that we've been working for and dreaming about our whole life long. She's heard him talk this way before. Shortly after 11 p.m., she says, listen, I'm I'm going to bed. Please come up. In a little while, he says, staring away at his laptop, I just need to get a little bit more done. A couple of more emails I'll knock off, and, and then I'll be up. So she goes off to bed. About 3 o'clock in the morning, she wakes up, and he's not there, and she goes down to check on him. There he is, falling asleep again at his desk. Touches him on the shoulder to rouse him, and his skin is cold to the touch. Nothing that she says will wake him. At this point, she's sick almost to the point of nausea. She's trembling so hard that she can hardly dial the number 911. Paramedics arrive a few minutes later with the horrific news. And he'd suffered a massive heart attack in the night. But he'd gone for long before they arrived, and there was nothing to be done. Now, his death is a major story in the financial community. Obituaries are written up in national newspapers and business publications. He would love to have read what they wrote about him. 
they held a memorial service. And because of his prominence in the community, the church that he once in a while attended was on that day filled to capacity with dignitaries and business leaders. And they all file past the man's casket. And they all say the same stupid thing that you hear said at funerals. He looks so peaceful. Of course he does. Rigor mortis will do that, right? (laughs) And then one by one, they get up and they're going to eulogize him. This admired, respected, successful, prosperous, family-neglecting, God-ignoring man. One of them says he was he was the leading entrepreneur of this generation. Another, he was an innovator, developed new business technologies, new delivery systems. He was creative. And everybody says that they knew somebody in the community that knew him. His network was so vast, his influence so significant. And because of his prominence, they erected a tall marble monument in his memory, and they etched on it the words that every entrepreneur, visionary leader would love to see at the end of their life, success. And then they all went home. And when it was night, and the darkness fell, and there was no one around to hear, an angel of God came to the cemetery and wrote on the tombstone of that admired, respected man the one word that summarized his life in the eyes of God. Fool. You fool, Jesus says. This very night, your soul has been required of you. Now, this is a smart man, this character in Jesus' story. And he learned to play the game of life and business, and he played it so well, he was like the master of the board. There are people in our lives that play that game so well. There are people in churches that, that play it just so well, and yet they forget this one thing. One day it will end. Jesus tells the story of this fool, and he ends it up with these devastating words. Luke 12, verse 21. So it is, Jesus said, with everyone who stores up for themselves things of this earth, but are not rich toward God. And to be honest, I don't know how we read those words in our country, in our society, in our churches, without trembling. We get all worked up about the stuff that comes into our lives. We think that somehow it gets to define us. It makes us important. And it's easy to forget this one thing. It all ends. The game always ends. And when it does, it all just gets packed away. I don't want to pretend that other generations are somehow better or worse than ours, just different. But in other generations, at least... There was a greater level of clarity about this. There's a prayer that parents used to pray with their kids at night. Some of you will know it. I don't expect it gets prayed a whole lot anymore. But you remember this one? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's a somber prayer, right? You know, there's a second verse. I'm not sure how many of you know it. But I want you to imagine a parent kneeling by the side of the bed, praying this prayer with their child. Our days begin with trouble here, and our life is but a span. And cruel death is always near. Such a frail thing is man. Sooner or later, it all ends. 
for you, for me. All the stuff that we acquire stays here. And so you have to ask of yourself, in view of this one great truth that really smart people easily forget, how do you want to live your life? There's a Yale theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf, who has a distinction that I I really find very helpful. He says that there really are two kinds of riches in the world, two ways of thinking about wealth. He says there's the richness of having nice cars, nice houses, have boats, have clothes, have money, have bulging barns. But then he says there's also the richness of being, to be rich in love. To be rich in mercy, rich in justice, rich in serenity and peace, rich in friendship. I think that most people would say that what they really want is richness of being. But the mistake that we make is is in believing that somehow that we can achieve it through the richness of having. That when we acquire stuff, it gives us all of that. And it does for a little time. We get a bump. We get a temporary little thrill, like a bounce. And it's tempting to think that if we get enough stuff, we can keep that bounce lasting forever, but it never does. What we're really after is richness of being. And our mission, if you'd like, as a church, as followers of Jesus, is all about the richness of being to which we are invited in Christ. And this really gets to the connection between the gospel, the claim the gospel has on our lives and our money. And I want to talk about it just for a few minutes. I'm aware of the time, but I want to think with you about the spirituality of giving. And I want with you to cast a grander, brighter vision of what it is that we are called to do. Because I don't want you to go home feeling guilty about your stuff. If that's all that you get, I failed and we didn't get it together. It's not enough to say that there's more to life than just storing up things for ourselves. We have to connect that with what it means to really treasure, to, to be rich in the things of God. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the gospel. In fact, let's do this for just a minute. Would you turn to somebody beside you or around you? And answer this question, what is the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim? If somebody were to ask you that question, what's the gospel? What's the good news? How would you answer that? Just spend a minute or two. No, really, you can talk in church. Not easy, is it? And we think this is on the 101 curriculum, but it's not easy. Just a couple of verses here. Mark chapter 1, very beginning of the gospel. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Change your life and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. 
Luke begins the same way, summarizes it the same way. Luke chapter 9, when Jesus called together the 12 disciples, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out with this mission. He said, proclaim the kingdom of God and heal those who are sick. In Luke 10, he sends out 72 more, a vast community of missionaries, and he says, heal the sick, and while you're there, tell them this, the kingdom of God is coming near. That's his ministry. And then after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, we're told in the book of Acts that he appeared over a period of 40 days and spoke to hundreds and hundreds of people. What was he talking to them about? The kingdom of God. The very last verse in the book of Acts, Paul summarizes it this way. It says, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord. And he did so with all boldness and without hindrance. If you had to think about and talk about the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, what do you think it might involve? The kingdom of God. His gospel, the good news, was that in himself, in his person, the kingdom of God, life in God's presence, life in God's favor, and his power, that in Jesus, it suddenly becomes available and it starts now. And one of the reasons why it's so important to say that is because for for much of the church in our day, the gospel has been replaced with something that might be called the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven. Right? A lot of people's understanding of the gospel is reduced to just those bare few things you need to do to secure a seat up above. And there are big theological debates about what that bare minimum, those few things are, what you need to do. But here's the problem. When the New Testament writers talk about Jesus, they never once record him saying anything even close to, now I'm going to proclaim to you the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. He never does. He never puts the good news, the gospel in those terms. What's his gospel? The gospel is that right now, in him and through him, in his body and in his person and his life, the kingdom that's up there is leaking down here. And a new community is being formed. A new way of living is suddenly possible. And it happens in the presence of God. And yes, it stretches out into eternity, but it starts now. That's what happened to the church in Acts chapter 2 that Jen read about. That's the spiritual transformation that, that preceded the explosion of generosity in the Macedonian church that Solomon just read about. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus says to anybody who wants in, come to me and it can be yours. And people did. And then he gave them a mission, a calling, the honor of spreading that kingdom. Maybe just a couple of words about kingdom, because we, we don't really use that language much, do we? You know, my kingdom, your kingdom. Uh, this is from Dallas Willard. He says, you know, a kingdom is really just that sphere in which what you say goes. Your kingdom is the effective range of your will, right? We all have a kingdom. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. Remember, God makes human beings, and he says, let them have dominion. That's kingdom language, right? But we know what this looks like. What's a two-year-old's favorite word other than no? Mine, right? Mine. You see, they're learning very on the language of the kingdom. This is mine. 
It's within the sphere of my will and my influence. Two kids in the back seat of a car and they're fighting. What are they fighting about? This is your kingdom. This is my kingdom. Stay out of mine. You've got a kingdom. I've got one. We all have them, but we mess them up. Now, sometimes we try and merge them together and and Karina and I, we come together and we form a larger kingdom. We make families and, and sometimes families make neighborhoods and cities and nations. But all together, these are what the Bible calls the kingdoms of the earth. Question, how are things going with the kingdoms of the earth? More than 30,000 children die every day of malnutrition. Terrorism and war and the trafficking of women and children like modern-day cattle, it's a mess. And then Jesus comes proclaiming something new, the kingdom of God, being made available now, available to anyone who wants it, available as the free gift of grace purchased through Calvary. And the good news was, as he puts it in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How wonderful you are. He starts there. And then the next line, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How different that is from that kind of Star Trek prayer that maybe we were taught to pray. Lord, beam me up, just get me out of here. No, Lord, make what's up there Come to life down here, starting with me, starting in my life, in my body, starting with my stuff. Part of the reason I think Jesus talks so much about money and things is that they can be so toxic and sinful to kingdoms. Not just national kingdoms, but for each one of us. Money is how we extend our kingdoms. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to pray. God Your kingdom come. And then when you have stuff, when you have resources and you're tempted to hoard them, instead, you share them, you give them, you pass them on to somebody else, you become generous, you serve with your time and your wallet. And what's happening when you do that is a little bit of what's there, up there, is coming down here. Now, I guess here's the real question. Do we believe it can happen? I mean, do we take seriously that part of the Lord's Prayer when we pray it all the time? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in grandiose terms, but in me, in my life, in my church. What would that look like? See, this is the gospel. We are stewards of stuff, yes, but... We're stewards of so much more than just that. We are stewards of the gospel, of the good news. We are stewards of the only hope for lasting richness that this sorry, dark world has. And Jesus' plan was to establish in his churches these little kingdom outposts in the world so that you get to be a kingdom bearer and you and you and me. When somebody becomes a follower of Jesus... That's not just good news for them. That's good news for everybody within their circle or sphere of influence. Their family, their neighborhood, their workplace. Because a little bit of the kingdom is going to come into all of those lives because of them. We are stewards of our stuff, of course. But we are stewards of the gospel. The gospel is the best possible news 
that the world could receive. And so God sends us stuff, lots of stuff, lots of resources. All that stuff is going to get left behind. But we can use it. We can use it in a way that, to use Jesus' descriptive language, makes us rich toward God. Listen, sometimes we think these are financial issues or that they're attachment issues. They're not. These are spiritual issues. You and I are stewards of this legacy. And so we prod and we push and we pray, we serve and and we give. Why? Because it matters. Because it matters for eternity, because it matters for today. We can be rich in the things that matter. Let's wrap it up by going back to the text that you put your thumb in at the beginning of the message. Matthew 6.21. In here is the second key in the treasure principle that you'll be looking at this week in your small groups. You remember the first key from last week? God owns everything. I'm just a steward of his resources. Here's the second key. My heart always goes where I put my money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. My heart will always go where I put my money. And it's not just that this is a litmus test of spirituality, a way of saying let's evaluate our lives based on how we're spending. Listen to a little bit that, that Randy Alcorn writes in his book. He says, your heart, yes, will always follow your treasure. It's as if Jesus is saying, show me your bank records, your visa statement. I'll show you where your heart is. But what we do with our money, this is important. What we do with our money doesn't just indicate where our hearts are. According to Jesus, it also determines where our hearts will go. This is good news. I suppose, he says, you buy shares of the Ford Motor Company. What happens? You suddenly develop an interest in Ford. And you check the financial pages. You see a magazine article about Ford and you'll read every word. You'll probably buy Ford as your next car. Our hearts will always go where we invest God's money. What happens if we start investing our money in godly things, in kingdom things, in people and causes that matter? Our hearts go there. People will say, I wish I had more of a heart for mission. Put your money in missions. I guarantee you're going to get passionate about it. You wish you cared more about eternal things and reallocate some of your money, maybe more of it than you think, to eternal things and watch what happens. You'll be amazed. And you'll be happy. In the end, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And he's not looking for dispassionate philanthropists for his kingdom. He's looking for disciples filled with a vision for his kingdom, so filled with it that they wouldn't dream of not investing their time, their prayers, and their stuff in what matters most. That's the spirituality of giving. That God uses giving to conform us in his image. You gaze on Jesus long enough and you'll become a more generous giver. And if you give long enough, you'll become more like Christ. Let's pray. Now, God, there's lots here. There's so much in your word that's a challenge to us. It's countercultural. It's, it's not instinctive in our world. There's been so much in this service. Good news stories, challenges. There's just been so much. But God, will you take it? And God, will you sift through it in our lives and take what we need to hear 
and place it in such a position of prominence in our minds that we cannot shake it and we cannot escape it. And through your Holy Spirit, do your convicting work, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.